Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Now, it's interesting to note that there are seven Sundays in the Lenten season. There are seven Easter Sundays, so to speak. This is the fourth one, and so this is exactly in the middle of the seven Sundays that make up the Lenten season. Now, if my wife were here this morning and she isn't, she would say to me, Pete, I think you've preached from the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead enough. You need to shift gears. Well, one more Sunday, this one. And she's not here this morning, so I feel all the freedom from God to preach on this for one more Sunday. Now, with this, though, before we get into that story that we've looked at now for the fourth week, um, I wanted to remind us that this morning we will have communion. And we're going to have communion at the end of the service. But I want us to think about, as we're looking at the resurrection, I want us to think about communion. Because we're going to end with communion. Now, what you know is that when we take communion, almost every Sunday that we have it, I will read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I always read from it, verses 23 through 26. Here's what the Bible says. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. This is Apostle Paul speaking. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's a call for us to look back at the cross and remember Jesus coming in flesh, being the incarnate God, and what happened to him in his body. And then the text goes on to tell us that in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. But then there's verse 26. Verse 26 says something that's very fascinating but can be easily missed. And it says this, for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And what are the last three words? Until he comes, until he returns. Isn't that fascinating? That every church everywhere, as we take communion, we look back and we remember the history of Jesus, the incarnate God. But in the conclusion of it, the Gospels and the book of Corinthians calls us to think about the future with his return. Now, as we think about this idea of resurrection, and in just a moment, we will get to the idea of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But here's what's really fascinating, and I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the first century church, the 11 disciples that followed Jesus. Think carefully about this. Jesus is their leader. He's their Messiah. They follow him for three and a half years, and then he dies. Now, you may not know this, but in the hundred years on either side of Jesus, actually most primarily before, there were other messiahs that showed up in Israel, claimed to be the messiah, and the problem is they were all killed. And in all of those movements, when their leader, their messiah was killed, guess what choice they had? 
There's two choices. What do you do if you're in a movement, a religious movement, and your leader is killed? You have one of two choices, right? The first one is you disband. That makes sense, right? Where you go, oh, there's our leader. A leader died. Guess the leader wasn't the Messiah. We disband. What's the other thing that you could do? You could find a new leader. Exactly. You have one of two choices. And here's what's shocking. The first century church did neither. They didn't do either one. Their leader was killed and was dead and then was resurrected. And you know what they began to say? He's still our leader. He's alive. He's not dead. And all those other movements that when the leader dies, you either pick a new one or disband the movement, that's not what happened. As a matter of fact, more people joined the movement after he was dead, buried, and resurrected than before. And as a matter of fact, it grew so rapidly in the first hundred years, it was the second fastest growing religion in the entire Roman Empire. Now, how could that be? If your leader is dead, how could that possibly happen? But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't dead. He was resurrected. He came back to life. Now, what I want us to look at very carefully this morning is the idea of Jesus and the resurrection. Now, what we know, and we've looked at this the past three weeks, we took a look at Jesus as he raises Lazarus from death to life. We've looked at it for three weeks. I can give you my word, this is the fourth and final. But we read the episode where Martha comes out to Jesus and meets him before he gets to the tomb and raises her brother from the dead. So Martha meets Jesus, and in doing so, we pick up our reading in John chapter 11, verses 20 to 27. And I want to remind us that we are in chapter 11 of John, and there are 21 chapters in the gospel of John, and Jesus has already announced He's headed to Jerusalem to die. So from John chapter, the end of chapter 10 all the way to the end of chapter 21 involves six days of Jesus' life. Over half of the gospel focuses on the last six days of Jesus' life and the raising of Lazarus begins that movement towards Jesus' death. So here we pick up our story. In John eleven twenty to 27, here's what the text tells us. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus answered her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection. And what are the next four words? At the last day. Now, isn't that fascinating? When Lazarus is dead, Jesus comes to Martha and says, guess what? You know your brother? He's dead. But guess what? He is going to be raised. And she says, yep, that's right. He will be resurrected. But when will the resurrection happen? What does she tell us? At the last day. The last day, biblically, is at the very end of time. It's when God, by his spirit, will culminate all things. 
Many Jews believed this. The Pharisees believed this, that they believed that God, who had made a good creation, will at the end of all time resurrect people and they will be involved with God's renewed good creation. Many Jews believed this along with the Pharisees and Jesus believed it as well. So she's got this belief that resurrection's real, but it happens at the last day. It's distant future. And so Jesus goes on to say to her in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. How strange. So she's got this theological doctrine that has taught her resurrection's real. God's going to raise the righteous back to life. It's going to happen at the end of time. And Jesus steps in front of her and says, Martha, I want you to look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. Reading on. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. Martha actually believed that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and her brother isn't even brought back to life yet. She already believes this. Reading on, she says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I want you to notice something about what Martha believes and what all Jews believed or many believed during the time of Jesus. And here's what it is. They believed that resurrection happens at the end of time. Now, as you look at your story, what you figure out very quickly is that pending resurrection gives no peace and no comfort to Martha in the midst of the grief and the loss and the death of her brother. Zero. It's a theological construct. It's a concept theologically, but it happens at the end, at the last day. Martha experiences no hope from that, no comfort from that, no peace from that. Again, it's something she believes in, but it is so distant and so far off, it's not relevant to where she lives. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus steps in front of her and he says this to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she says, Yes, I believe. I believe. Now notice the promise of Jesus. He says this, if you believe in me, although you die, you will live. There's death to life. Death to life. Now, there's another thing that has just happened when Jesus mentions this, that I hope I can explain to you because it's key for you to understand Easter and the resurrection. This is key to get. It's this. Some of the Jews, the majority of Jews, believed in the resurrection at the end of time. Now what Jesus does is he steps in as the incarnate God and he steps into the middle of history and when he does, he makes a crazy announcement. What's the announcement that he made? I am the what? The resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me is going to have resurrection life. You gotta catch this. So instead of waiting till the end of all time, 
Now suddenly, the thing that everyone assumed was at the end of time is now transported in Jesus into the middle of history. It's not at the end now. Now, in Jesus, it's in the middle. And if that's true, then everything has changed. Everything just changed. If Jesus truly is the resurrection and the life, that thing that everyone's waiting for at the end of time, the end of time has now just stepped into the middle of history and because he is the resurrection and the life, that means that history has stepped into the present and the present is now transformed. We have to understand this. Because everyone that was a Jew that met Jesus and believed he was the resurrection and the life, they understood that to be true. Suddenly, the resurrection is real. It's not a distant, uncomforting, uninvasive, unhopeful thing that happens way down the road. Now suddenly, resurrection in Jesus is available now. That's why he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Because both of those come together in him and it's available now to anyone who believes in him. It's available now. You don't die to get it and then wait several millennium until suddenly the resurrection happens. In him, it's available now. History has now stepped into the present, and because of that, from Jesus on, history is totally transformed. Everything's different. There's a new kind of life, and it's called resurrection life. Now, what I'm well aware of in this sermon is that this sermon is going to seem at times to be somewhat theological or technical, but I believe we need to know it. We have to understand the truth of the resurrection. So what we discover now is, is that Jesus stands in front of Martha and makes this announcement on the resurrection and the life. Then what he does is he goes to a tomb, her brother that's been dead for four days, he raises him from the dead. Now again, I mentioned this last week. Lazarus being raised from the dead is not resurrection it's resuscitation and there's a huge difference and last week when I mentioned that I told you that part of today's sermon will be to explain the difference between resuscitation and resurrection because they're different resuscitation is when someone who's lost their life gets it back again in the same body they had before and guess what happens to people that get resuscitated what happens? They die again. Lazarus, dead four days, gets resuscitated, but guess what happened to Lazarus? He died. Don't know how. Bible doesn't tell us. But Lazarus, although resuscitated, still dies. Resurrection is eternally different than resuscitation. It's different. So what I want us to do is take a little bit look in deeper into the Gospel of John because the concept of what Jesus is about with resurrection begins to make more sense as we step into the Gospel of John. Now where we're going to read is the Last Supper. It's the communion table. 
It's the Lord's Supper. It's where we look, and in the Gospel of John, we discover that Jesus sits down in John chapter 14 with his disciples, and when he does, he's getting ready to eat a meal that every Jew has eaten for the past 1,400 years. Ever since Moses took the people into the promised land, every Jew has been eating the Passover meal exactly the same for 1,400 years. And Jesus sits down to eat this meal with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. And when Jesus sits down to eat this meal, he makes several statements that sends everyone into a tailspin. Here's the first one. He says to them, you know, I've been talking about dying for over a year now, and guess what? It's really going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. We know within just a couple of days, it happens. So he makes that announcement. At the same meal in John 14, he makes another announcement, and that is, one of the disciples is going to betray me. One of the disciples is going to turn on me. And then the third crazy announcement is he looks at Peter and Peter says to him, Jesus, even if you die, I'll die with you. And Jesus says to Peter, sorry, Peter, not only will you not die with me, you will deny me three times. And the rest of the disciples had to think to themselves, Peter is the most gung-ho of us all. And if he cuts bait and runs, all of us will. So Jesus is going to die Someone's going to betray him, and Peter will deny him three times. You talk about a depressing meal. They're all bummed out. And then in Jesus begins to speak in John 14, verses 1 through 3. It says, now he comforts his disciples. So after all this grief and this difficult news, John 14, 1 through 3 says this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Can we say that phrase together? Are you ready? Say it out loud. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, what have I told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. That's a very strange way of putting life. Jesus has told them, someone's gonna betray me. Peter, you're gonna deny me. I'm going to die, but guess what? I'm gonna return and I'm gonna get you and you're gonna be with me. Now the phrasing that Jesus uses is very, very cultural. I wanna sketch this. His phrasing is how a man would get engaged to a woman. Let me explain. In Jesus' time, if you got engaged, there was a way to say that to the woman you were in love with. So I was engaged to my wife, Fran. I got engaged to her in Lambertville, New Jersey at Lambertville Station. Great restaurant. Go there and eat if you ever get the chance. So we ate a meal, we went outside, I found a really romantic place, and I got down on one knee, and I said, Fran, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And we dated a couple more months, and then we broke up. Five weeks before the marriage. Not advisable, very painful, all the stuff had to be returned, awkward, right? And then we waited, and we got engaged again about a year and a half later, and lo and behold, we've been married now for 31 years. So try, try again. 
took me that long to talk her into it. Now, the idea was, though, is that when we got engaged, I got down on one knee the second time. This was at the university where I was a chaplain. I got down on one knee in this beautiful little courtyard with the gorgeous buildings around. I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. In Jesus' culture, if I were Jesus and Fran were Mary, I'd have gone to her, and here's what I would have said. Mary, I'm gonna leave you now, and I'm gonna go to my father's house and I'm going to build a room for us and when that room's done I'm going to come and get you so that you can be where I am now here's the trick she never knew when the groom would show up he would show up unannounced and that's why Jesus teaches these parables about these brides-to-be and they have oil in their lamp And what are they waiting for? The groom to come. They can't wait. They're on pins and needles. And if the dude's a horrible carpenter, you could wait a long time for the room to be done, right? But it was kind of how the guy showed he was responsible and that he was able to take care of her. And so he would go and build a room. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, guess what? I'm gonna die, I'm leaving, but I'm gonna go to my father's house and I'm gonna build all of you a room. And when those rooms are done, I'm going to come back and get you. It's the closest commitment. It's the height of commitment in Jewish culture. And Jesus makes that to his disciples. You're going to come and be with me. Now think of the hope of that. He's just told them he's going to die. And then he says, but guess what? I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you and you will be with me where I am. Now as we read deeper into that same meal and the conversation At the exact same meal, we pick up our story again in John 14, 25 to 27. Here's what Jesus says at the tail end of the meal. All this I have spoken while still with you. In other words, he's going to leave. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace, I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. What are the next five words? Or more, six words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Say it with me, ready? Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's exactly what he said to him when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what Jesus means is this. Gonna go away, prepare a place. I'm gonna come back and get you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And while I'm gone, I'm gonna send the third person of the Trinity and the Trinity will be with you. I'm leaving, but the Trinity will be with you. So don't get worried. Now think about that. Jesus leaving, sends the Spirit. And what do we have right now? We have the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm gonna send the Spirit to be with you. So don't be troubled. Now, As we talk now about putting feet to our faith with what we believe, what does it mean to us practically? What do we need to think about when it comes to Jesus in the resurrection? What do we need to think about? Paul tells us very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, and then 17 through 19. Here's what the text tells us. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, And so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, 
your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That's shocking. Paul looks at the resurrection and says that's the proof that your sins have been atoned for. Then reading on, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus only makes a difference in this life, Paul says, what's the point? What he begins to talk about is this idea that if Christ has been raised from the dead, then the next life is touching us now as well. In other words, the resurrection and the life affects you now. You don't die to get it, it's here now because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you, same spirit. Now reading on a little bit further, same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 57. Here's what Paul writes to the church of Corinth. I declare to you brothers, how many of you are brothers? Raise your hand. And sisters, sisters, raise your hand. So it's all of us. No one's left out. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Grab your arm. Grab it. You know what that is? Flesh and blood. It's not allowed in. Oh, what? Paul says, your body is not allowed into the kingdom of God. That's stunning. Now let's read on. See what else he says. He says, your flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, although some of us are now. At that point, we will not all fall asleep, but we will be changed. Interesting. So this body is not allowed in heaven. Why? It's perishable. Nothing corruptible can go into God's perfection. Reading on, in a flash, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, how? Imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul talking about? He's saying this. You know that body you have? It's deteriorating. It's corruptible. It's impure. It's broken. It's dysfunctional. And Paul says this, that body cannot go into heaven as it is. Your body will go to heaven in the resurrection, but you will get a new body. And the new one will be imperishable, incorruptible, it'll be a body that sin, death, and hell can have no entrance into. It's gonna be a body that can actually live in heaven. It can actually live there. 
Paul in Philippians 3, 20 through 21 explains it this way. But our citizenship is in heaven. While you're living here, because of the resurrection, you already have a postal address in heaven. It's already there. There's a room, your name, a postal address on the door. He goes on to say, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, on March 19th of last year, five days from now, my father passed away. And where he passed away, he was in a retirement home. COVID had just hit. They allowed us to go in and to see him, but we had to leave by around 8.30 at night and he passed away in his room. We got a call in the middle of the night saying, your dad's passed away. My mom and I went over to sit with him. So there was my dad laid out in that room. And here's what I can tell you. It was sorrowful. We were grieving and our hearts are broken. But he, through faith, had encountered the resurrection in the life. And although his corruptible body succumbed to death, he will on that day have an incorruptible body that can live forever with God in perfection. And so although we were grieving, there's a hope and a peace and a longing for that day. And I have done so many funerals, I have lost count. And every time I think about there at graveside, and I think about that body that was corruptible and succumbed to sin and death in the grave, in Jesus Christ, there is a resurrection life that that person lived with before they died. And there will come a day where that corruptible body will be changed it will be resurrected. There will be a new body. And Paul says in Philippians, it'll be like Jesus. The resurrected body of Jesus, where he could walk through walls. He could appear in rooms. And the best part of it is, you'll still be able to eat Italian food. Because Jesus ate fish and chips with his disciples and resurrected. There was something strangely natural about his body. But strangely supernatural about it as well. His body, the body that had succumbed to death and sin on the cross is now perfect, yet you could still see the wounds in him. The imprint of earth was on him, but it no longer held him. And the same is the promise of God for me and for you, that when we put our faith in Jesus, he is the resurrection and the life. What was to happen at the end of time has now happened in the middle of time. And because of that, we have a hope and a peace and a promise in Christ that death will lose its grip on us.